This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Richard Lang discusses his new short fiction collection, Sweet Nothing. Then PW News Director Rachel Deal looks at how Jon Stewart changed television coverage of books. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. What do you have for us? Well, in fiction, it is all thrillers all the time. Uh, We have five new thrillers on the top 20 books. Uh, And uh, at number two is J.D. Robb's Obsession and Death. Uh, J.D. Robb is a pseudonym for Nora Roberts, who writes women's fiction. The Mm. the Robb pseudonym is the one that she uses for uh, thriller-type books. This is the 40th in her near-future New York City series um, set in the year 2060. And uh, it's wow. you know, pure pure thriller through and through. Uh, there's a police lieutenant, uh, Eve Dallas, who's at the, the heart of the series. And uh, she has a long history of successful cases, but she also has a homicidal admirer who's determined to remove those who disrespect her. So uh, she has to try and find this person and explain that, you know, maybe killing her critics is not the way to go. <laughs> Uh, we say that Rob plays her familiar and popular tune with enough new flourishes to please her legions of fans. These are very, very popular books. Uh, you know, 40 is a big number. And yeah. uh, no surprise, this one sold 30,000 copies its first week out. Wow. And uh, moving down the list at uh, number five is A Spool of Blue Thread by Ann Tyler. Um, Tyler's a Pulitzer winner, and uh, we said that this book is thoroughly enjoyable, but uh, incohesive. Mm. Um, This is more of a a family drama. Uh, It chronicles the adventures of the Witshank family through several generations in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and uh, we say that, that some parts of it are a little jarring for the reader, um, but Tyler does tie the sections together, showing once again that she is a gifted and engrossing storyteller. Uh, they announced a first printing of 125,000 copies. It's pretty solid. Um, the first week out, it sold a little bit over 14,000. Okay. So very respectable showing. Yeah. Uh, number seven, we're back to the thrillers. Uh, we have an, an Alex Delaware novel from Jonathan Kellerman. This one's called Motive. It's the 30th novel, so a lot of milestones this week, uh, <laughs> featuring L.A. psychologist Alex Delaware. And uh, our review says it will keep even genre veterans guessing. Uh, oh, so wow. the, the twists are both shocking and logical which is uh, always you know, a difficult balance to walk. You want something that makes sense in retrospect, but that mm-hmm. the reader didn't see coming. Um, and we also say that the byplay between the leads uh, is very entertaining. And that's that's actually pretty in, you know, important as well for someone like Jonathan Kellerman, something that might seem uh, perhaps formulaic, but, but to keep readers guessing and to be able to have that to, to keep them going. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. I would certainly not ever try my hand at writing <laughs> that kind of plot. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's very hard to keep all the pieces where they where they ought to be. Uh, and going down a little bit further uh, at number twelve, appropriately enough, we have Twelve Days by Alex Berenson. Um, this is the ninth thriller in the John Wells series, and. Uh, we say that uh, there's a very effective opening in which Berenson makes the victims of a terrorist attack real enough to give their deaths uh, serious emotional impact. Uh, and then after that, gets into pretty familiar territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's something about uranium, something about the U.S. possibly invading Iran. Uh, and the desperate efforts to avoid war make for an exciting page-turner, but our review says that the characters lack subtlety and the plot holds few surprises. Uh, despite oh. that, you know, Berenson's still a 
yeah. doing fine with his fans um, and uh, sold about 5,600 copies okay. first week out. And just below that is the new James Rollins, Blood Infernal. Uh, this is uh, co-written with Rebecca Cantrell. And uh, this is uh, a thriller with supernatural elements, uh, the, the third in the series, where uh, the series heroes must undertake a final quest to prevent Lucifer from returning to our world. And uh, there's quite a lot in there about uh, the, the heroes are called the Sanguines, um, which means having to do with blood. And so there's a lot of blood rituals and um, you know, people who uh, have... Uh, have a thirst for blood, but have, have accepted Christ. And so right. they've learned to drink wine instead um, in that sort of transmutation way. And uh, we say that there's an almost endless series of riddles, clues, battles, and betrayals, the inevitable visit to the Vatican. Um, the heroes survive gruesome wounds and grueling tests before a climactic battle and a surprise ending. Is this typical for Rollins? I mean, I, I know this is the series, the last title was Innocent Blood, but is this the kind of stuff that he's writes about? Um, this is, you know, what, what he's been doing lately. I think he's also done some more conventional contemporary thrillers. But, right. uh, you know, some people would say that paranormal is where the money is. Oh. Uh, certainly, as we've seen with the thrillers hitting the bestseller lists week after week after week, right. there's also plenty of cash to be had there if you yeah. write something that captures the attention of readers. But uh, this one's certainly doing quite well for itself at number 13 on the hardcover Great. fiction list with about 5,000 copies sold. So what's happening in nonfiction? Well, we've got a new number one. This is called The Food Babe Way. Break free from the hidden toxins in your food and lose weight, lose years younger, and get healthy in just 21 days by Vani Hari. And uh, here she, she talks about you know, fast foods, how many chemicals are used, and uh, various things we consume. And she really argues on how to cut toxins, you know, how to get this chemicals out of your diet and just by doing so as well as following her instructions you can lose weight in just 20 you get healthy in 21 days uh she's known as the food babe uh from her blog and um that's at number one and uh, uh, i i, I want to ask you about this whole chemicals thing i mean from a chemistry standpoint pretty much everything is a chemical i, I think process going so for yeah it's exactly a more, it's yeah. a more specific yeah exactly term. exactly uh next up number three uh believer my 40 years in politics by david axelrod uh we have not reviewed this book yet doris kearns goodwin says beautifully written with warmth humor and remarkable self-awareness believer is one of the finest political memoirs i've ever read and here it is at number three on our list uh going down a little bit we have a cookbook, the America's Test Kitchen New Family Cookbook, and America's Test Kitchen. We the, from the editors, of America's Test Kitchen. These cookbooks um, show up on on the bestseller list pretty regularly. I have an advanced copy of this one. It's terrific. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I, I, have I, you started using it? Yeah, yet? I have. Yeah. I've, oh, I've, great. Uh, I've pulled out a couple of recipes. Uh, one of the advantages of working at PW is mm -hmm. I, I get these uh, books off the cart after we've reviewed them, but before they're published right, and uh, right. I really I really enjoy this one but I'm I'm a devotee of America's Test Kitchen and the uh, Cooks Illustrated crew so it's um, great and, they, and they do really good work and this is the first one this is the new edition and it's in hardcover rather than ring bound uh, and it's, they say it's uh, 1100 new recipes mm -hmm. for this new edition and uh, it's about well you've seen it about almost 900 pages so it's, it's, it's pretty big solid. and yeah. it's very crowded like you open it up mm. and there are columns of recipes none of this sort of one one page per recipe with a pretty illustration right kind exactly of thing. it just it just keeps going and keeps going uh, right exactly so uh very utilitarian um and very useful. And very useful. Exactly, yeah. Uh, next up, at number 16, we have Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. We say in our review, writing with wit and verve, Harari, professor of history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, attempts to explain how Homo sapiens came to be the dominant species on Earth. Uh, we say, uh, in the end, Harari is provocative and entertaining, but his expansive scope only allows him to skim the surface. So, uh, But that's at number 16. And finally, uh, at number 30, 
Zach Bagans, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I'm haunted living life through the dead. Uh, and uh, he's traveled the world seeking uh, the deepest, most terrifying mysteries um, in the uh, publicity uh, material here. Is they said he bought a demon house in uh, Indiana uh, and described it as a portal to hell. And he summoned the devil at the Hellfire Club in Ireland. And he's even been attacked uh, by a possessed doll in Mexico. And uh, you know, there's several shows on, on the paranormal and paranormal experiences, and um, this is his, and it's at number 30. All right. We have a nonfiction. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Richard Lang tells us about his cinematic stories set in gritty, grimy L.A. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brandon Sanderson, author of the Reckoner series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Richard Lang on the line. His new book is Sweet Nothing. Hi, Richard. So glad you could join us. Wow, thanks for having me. So this is a collection of short stories, and it's titled Sweet Nothing, which is just published this week. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Well, uh, it's my second collection of of stories. Uh, my first one came out in 2007. It was called Dead Boys, and I did a couple novels. So it's a, a return to the form for me uh, that my publisher was <laughs> gracious enough to uh, to put out. And uh, they're just uh, stories I've written over the past four or five years. They've been published in various small magazines, and uh, now they're collected here in one place. They're mostly set in L.A., because uh, that's where I live, and I write about where I live. But uh, there are a couple of departures this time around. Uh, one of them is sort of a post-apocalyptic thing set in central California, and then there's a uh, one I wrote in Bordeaux, France, when I was writer-in-residence there that is actually a historical thing that's set in 1899 in, uh, in Bordeaux. But, uh, yeah, they've, you know, it's uh, a bunch of stories that I've written over the past four years. So what led you to take those different approaches to, to write a post-apocalyptic story, to write a historical story? Well, the last book, uh, Dead Boys, all the stories were pretty, they were all first person. They were all male narrators, and they were all set uh, in L.A. in a certain, basically in a certain neighborhood in Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, I've, I've grown as a writer since then, and I wanted to kind of stretch, uh, you know, flex my muscles a little and try something new. And uh, that's what, what led to it. I have a lot of, this book has uh, much more varied narrators. Some stories are first person, some are third person. Uh, there's some that are, you know, like I said, set in the past. And uh, just, to, I wanted to do, to, work with a wider variety of uh, voices than I had in the first one. And what was it like working in the third person from the first person, uh, from going from first to third? Well, uh, you know, my novels are in third person, mm -hmm. so uh, I'd already had some practice at it, and, you know, which is the way I like to work things is, the stories are very are different in a sense from the novels in that they're uh, much more concerned with uh, they're they're more like emotional roller coasters for the reader rather than being connected uh, being strongly connected to plot. They're full of incident but not full of much plot. And uh, I uh, and with the novels there's this plot thing and for some reason I, it, it works better for me if I'm going to do that to use third person. And I like to go back going back and forth from novels to stories. I like to take the things that I learn that I use in the, in the stories and try to bring them into the novels. And then I'm also learning things as I'm, I'm learning to be a novelist. I've only uh, written two novels and uh, I'm in the middle of the third one, but I like to bring the things that I've learned while writing the novels back into the stories, So uh, they kind of uh, cross pollinate. So you had mentioned that uh, the majority of your stories before you had taken this departure in ways are, are set in LA uh, and in, at least in our review, you, you seem to, to talk about uh, uh, grifters, ex-cons, gamblers. And tell us a little bit about that and which, which you said is basically set in a certain, in a certain section of L.A. What, what is that? And who are these characters? 
Well, the, the first book of stories was set mainly where I live, which is in uh, the Echo Park, Silver Lake uh, area of Los Angeles, which is now a very different neighborhood from when I wrote those those stories, you know, 10 years ago or whatever there. It's become much more gentrified and isn't sort of the rough and tumble place that it, it was uh, when I write, wrote those stories. But uh, I, I just find for me that it's uh, it's easier. I, I have a real uh, penchant for, uh, I, I, I want details to be accurate in the stories. And as far as like streets and even down to stores and, uh, you know, businesses that the, that the characters enter. And so it's easiest for me to do, of course, uh, in my neighborhood. I've had to widen out a little now in order to, to find uh, places where I can find the characters that I like to write about. It's true that most of the characters uh, in the stories and in the novels are sort of from the uh, demimon. They're, they're, they're gamblers and addicts and uh, petty criminals. Uh, as for why I write about those characters, I, you know, I don't know. It's just the, the world that, that I'm attracted to. And I actually, uh, it's kind of the world I come more in contact with. I don't know a lot of lawyers and doctors mm-hmm. and, uh, people like that. I, I tend to, uh, keep one foot, uh, in the front on the, in the fringe. And so I'm writing about, uh, characters that I either know or have heard about or, uh, you know, I've imagined from stories that I've heard from other people uh, about people that, uh, you know, sort of actual people. Uh, talk to us about your story, uh, Instinctive Drowning Response, which is about a dealer whose who's girlfriend uh, ODs. Uh, doesn't seem to be your typical dealer. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's weird when you're writing about uh, drug addicts. Uh, there's, you know, quite a variety of of drug addicts, and uh, that guy in particular uh, is is it's something very common that happens that uh, drug addicts begin to deal in order to uh, to to fund their habits, and that's sort of where he comes from. And if, uh, in the story, he works in what's called craft services, which is uh, the the people that serve food to people on uh, film sets. Mm-hmm. And so he all sort of has one foot in the glamorous Hollywood world. Uh, maybe that came out of, you know, I, I've started doing some screenwriting and I'm starting to have these little contacts with Hollywood. So that could be sort of a represent- representative of that. Uh, not that I'm dealing drugs to people here, but but uh, I find that like my personal experiences often make their way into the stories through you know not directly. I, I, I'm not an auto, autobiographical writer, but uh, the experiences I have show up in in some ways. So perhaps that story uh, is is that it. You know, there's an interesting group of people here in LA that they're not the famous people and uh, they're not the the poor immigrants of this middle ground of people that kind of have brushes with Hollywood but they still live a a very you know working class life and uh, I know a lot of those people and it's an interesting I think it's an interesting dynamic when most people have this picture of Los Angeles that it's either this you know it's either Mexico or it's you know Beverly Hills so uh, it's fun for me to to go into the parts of L.A. that seem a, a little bit less explored. It seems to be this is the support staff of Hollywood, then, <laughs> your characters. Exactly. So describe to us a little bit about Echo Park. I, I, I'm, I'm curious to know, um, I've been to L.A. Uh, several times. I haven't spent much time there. Tell us a little bit of what it was like when you first moved there and how it's changed. I mean, I can see so many changes here in New York City, where the New York City I know 20 years ago or 15 years ago isn't that is definitely not the same one I, I see now. It's similar. I, you know, I was in New York uh, in eighty four, eighty five, and uh, I recently went back, uh, you know, for the first time, and I couldn't even recognize the city. And mm. I, I, it, since I'm here, I'm watching it happen more gradually. But I can think that someone who hadn't been here in that amount of time would really find it strange. When I first moved here twenty years ago. Uh, it was mostly a uh, gay and gang neighborhood, so you had this uh, sort of. Uh, it actually worked all right. You know, I'm not even going to say it was an uneasy mix. It was a mix that that somehow worked. But in the years since then, 
uh, people have discovered the neighborhood, I guess. It's, it's, it, it sits between Hollywood and downtown. It's an area, it's, it's very uh, naturally beautiful. It has hills. I mean, we have coyotes and skunks, and, wow. and uh, the houses are all on big lots. And it used to be a working-class Latino and Filipino neighborhood, and now it's, uh, in the past 20 years, it's, it's gradually gone, it become a uh, sort of a, a second, uh, it's close to the studios, so we have a lot of film people living here, and I, I like to say that it used to be uh, brown women pushing brown babies in strollers, and now it's brown women pushing white babies in strollers. We have nannies everywhere. It's just things that I would never have imagined. Yeah. Uh, the stores are starting to come into chain stores, and uh, what, what happens during gentrification? I don't particularly like the like that aspect of it, but, uh, you know, I own my house, so I'm happy to see it go up in right. value. I, I was wondering but, how you manage this on a, on a writer's income. Well, I, uh, I was working a day job until seven years ago. I worked ah. in publishing uh, as, uh, I was always an editor. Uh, I started out at Larry Flint, uh, working on Hustler as a copy editor mm-hmm. when I got out of college. Uh, I was working in a bookstore and someone hired me to work as a with my, you know, my cinema degree from USC, I was working at a bookstore, and someone came in and hired me, uh, offered me a job at Flint. I worked there for about a year as a copy editor, and then they started a heavy metal music magazine called uh, Rip, and I worked on that for eight years throughout the heyday of, of metal in the late 80s, early 90s, until Nirvana came along and killed heavy metal, <laughs> and the magazine died. Then I kind of had uh, drifted around. I w- did I was a textbook editor for a while, and I ended up getting a really good gig on a trade paper called Radio and Records. It was uh, a paper that reported the comings and goings of DJs around the country and kind of like variety for the radio industry. And I was managing editor of that for 10 years. So, you know, I had a whole work life. Uh, you know, I, was, I never took writing jobs. I, I was only an editor because I tried to... When I was working on the metal magazine, I tried to sort of do some journalism, and I, it, it just takes me way too long, and I'm too much of a perfectionist. And for the money that it paid, it wasn't worth it. I would rather go home and work on fiction and, you know, fail at that on my own, which I did for years and years. But, yeah, that, so I actually, that's how I was able to, and I, you know, I've, I have a, I'm in a stable relationship. She has a good job. So, yeah, we were able years ago to buy the house at a very low rate and now it's you know it's gone up but we could we couldn't afford to live here now mm. but we're lucky uh, that we got in when we did so yeah it wasn't actually right if i had to do everything on a writer's salary I, I it wouldn't be working out quite as quite as well so um i've found personally as an editor who also writes and i know a lot of other editors who feel the same way that it can be hard to turn off that inner editor when when writing is that an experience that you've had too you know, I don't try because uh, I think that's one of the best things about me as a writer is that, and you know, my my editors will tell you when they get my manuscripts, they're clean. I mean, I, I'm so used to, especially from working with the kind of writers I was working with who were, you know, low-level music journalists and ex-DJs who were suddenly writing columns for this paper. They weren't writers, and so somehow I had to go in and you twist all this stuff around and, and make readable prose out of it. And for me, it was great practice uh, in, con- you know, in, in, in controlling the, the, the written word and corralling it and getting it to do what you wanted to do. And, and uh, I've never found it to, to, to be a problem at all uh, in my writing, only an asset those years of editing. So um, you said also that you're, you're a perfectionist and that you write kind of slowly. Um, how long did it take you to write the stories that are collected in this book? In this book, uh, it's kind of what they said. The first book, uh, Dead Boys, I had, you know, my whole life to get those uh, mm-hmm. 13 stories or whatever, 12 stories or whatever in there. This one, I wrote them over the course of two years. Uh, I wrote the first batch. Uh, I, I got a Guggenheim. And at that time, I'd published my first novel, and my publishers were kind of after me, like, well, maybe you want to do a series featuring this character. And I said, no, I think I'm going to go back and write short stories, which, you know, they weren't so happy about. But I had this Guggenheim money, and so I said, you know, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough to keep me going for that time period to write those stories. I ran out of money, and then I wrote another novel. I wrote Angel, uh, my novel Angel Baby in the interim, 
And then when that was finished and I'd been paid for it, I had enough money to go ahead and finish the collection of stories. So they were written in two years with a, a year and a half between uh, working spurts on them. So quicker than Dead Boys, but I'm also, a, you know, I also have more time to devote now that I'm not only doing it, you know, for two hours a night after my day job. I, I can actually do it full time, so it, it only makes sense that, that uh, it would move quicker. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Richard Lang, the author of Sweet Nothing, who's uh, just been telling us about his writing process. And your your stories have uh, been anthologized in a bunch of other collections. Uh, you had some Best American Mystery Stories. And yeah, I just found out uh, today that uh, a second story from Sweet Nothing is going to be in the next uh, Best American Mystery Stories. Well, that's great. Congratulations. Well done. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's good. So do you do you sort of categorize yourself as a as a mystery writer? I feel like a lot of the stories in this collection could be considered thrillers or mysteries or mainstream. Plus, there's your your dabbling in other genres. Yeah, I uh, I don't I don't call myself anything. You know, just a writer. It so happened that my first novel was kind of a uh, This Wicked World was kind of a murder mystery, but that was mainly because. I was so terrified of having to write a novel. I, you know, I, I, I only wanted to write stories. Unfortunately, you can't make a living or get a publishing contract if you tell them you just want to write short stories. So I had the collection done, and they said, well, you have to give us a novel, you know, next. So I had to sit down and kind of teach myself how to write a novel. I'd written one way back that I couldn't even get an agent for, so, you know, it was kind of a terrifying experience mm-hmm. to now have to do it. I owed them, you know, they paid me, I owed them, I had to write this novel. So in order to do that, I said, well, I need a plot or something to, you know, tack on all the things I wanted to write about, which I wanted to write about the desert and about dogfighting and uh, counterfeiting. And, you know, I had these areas I wanted to dabble in. So I said, well, I know, what's plot structure I know? I know murder mystery. Someone dies at the beginning and we find out at the end. And I kind of know that innately and I can use that as a skeleton to write this novel, it'll give me the the stations along the line that I need to stop at or these plot points I need to hit while at the same time allowing me to, you know, just write without uh, writing to plot. And, uh, it, you know, it ended up not being a perfect murder mystery because you found out who the killer was by like the fifth chapter. And it, 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 it was more like an Elmore Leonard book where you're following the characters around. But that was the idea behind that. Well, then you get, once you've done that, you get pegged as by, you get pegged as a marketing term, as a mystery writer or a thriller writer or whatever they want to, you know, if that's what they want to call it, uh, I, I don't care. Whatever sells books, <laughs> you know, they can put it into whatever category they want as as long as, as they're, you know, they're, they're, they're working to sell books. I just call myself a writer and it so happens that I... I tend to write about these these darker things. I, the problem is, it's just it's kind of too literary for the standard mystery crowd, and then it's you know too genre uh, in a way for the super literary crowd. So I'm just sort of hanging out in the middle, and you know it, it's a it, it's a place I'm comfortable in, keeping uh, one foot in both worlds. Well, I would like to talk a little bit more about craft since that's what you were uh, talking about right then. And, and, and you were telling us in detail about uh, you had the three ideas or so that you wanted to, uh, to discuss, you the uh, uh, dog fighting, the desert, and I think you said counterfeiting. Yeah. Uh, and, and you came across with some plot points. How, how did, was there a writer who you were reading or you read uh, to help you along with that? How did you come up with that? You know, I'm not a I'm not a great reader of mysteries. I'm, I I hate to say it. I haven't. I mean, I've made, read maybe one Raymond Chandler book, and uh, you know, the, the people you're supposed to have read. 
I haven't read that many of them. I actually don't enjoy uh, uh, detective books because it just seems like it's a series of scenes where people sit in rooms and talk. And I like a lot more uh, action. You know, you know, you see the detective go here and talk to this person and get more information. And it, they're kind of, I don't know. They're, it's they're, very cerebral. It's bo- it's, yeah, it's boring to me. So I, I like a lot more action and, and uh, incident. And so, but my model, if I had any, was Elmore Leonard. You know, I, I thought I'd, I'd read a bunch of his books. And I don't, you know, I don't know what people consider him. He's not a mystery writer. He's, I guess they call him a crime writer, but... I think he's just in general, uh, you know, just a, was was a damn good writer. And so he's always, uh, when I'm writing those, writing in those worlds, I'm always thinking about him. And he also did uh, interesting things with language. I mean, he's known for his dialogue, but even uh, around the dialogue, his narrative, he was using kind of modernist techniques uh, in his books. You know, I think he's highly underrated uh, as a writer. I mean, he's revered in certain circles, but in the, in the, in the general frame, I think he's uh, highly underrated. And other than that, I mostly, uh, you know, I read, you know, I read Dickens and, and, and Hardy and I read classics because I didn't read much of those as a, as a kid. So I, uh, I'm catching up on stuff that everybody's, everybody's read and, uh, those kind of, uh, formal plots in there, uh, helped me to, you know, to know with the beats that I had to hit, uh, and, they, and they help me now to know the beats that I have to hit as I'm going through a novel in order to keep the reader entertained. So staying on the theme of, of, of uh, nuts and bolts of, of writing, you, you were also uh, a student at the University of uh, Southern California. You got a degree in film. Um, does your cinematic mind influence your book writing? Oh, I think it, it's... Uh, it influences every writer now. I mean, uh, every writer who was born, you know, into the age of film is going to probably absorb something uh, from film. I mean, it just changes the way that you see the world. You start to see it in in scenes, you know, instead of... It's, it's weird when you go back and read older writers that are pre-cinema that uh, you, you can kind of see a difference in the way things are. And, and my first... You know, I always tell people that I was as, as influenced by music and film as a writer uh, as I was by by literature. I mean, those were the the first things that the first art forms that really uh, captured my imagination. So, yeah, definitely uh, watching films. I never wrote many. I mean, I wrote a couple screenplays in college because you had to in order to graduate. But I'd already by then. Uh, gone over into fiction and decided that that was uh, was going to be my my specialty and what I was going to focus on, and so uh, it's not that I had written so many screenplays, but I think it's just from seeing so many movies that you start to incorporate the rhythms and in a way it's good. I mean, there's you 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 can uh, for me because you can cut faster. You 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 know you learn ways of moving uh, the narrative along quickly. And I think some of the techniques that I use uh, when I'm writing are definitely would be uh, influenced by the be cinematic. So tell us more about the influence of music. Uh, I'm interested in that because that's not something that we hear very often is about the ways that writers incorporate music into their writing. But obviously, since you've, you've worked for this heavy metal magazine, it's uh, it's been pretty important to you. Yeah, I mean, I just remember those were some of the, you know, the first times I started thinking about writing with the idea of making an impression on people. I mean, the first things that made impressions on me as a kid, some of the first things were songs that I heard on the radio. And, you know, I'm thinking lyrically of these of these songs. And uh, I always said I wanted my short stories to affect people like the way that a good pop song does. You know, they're very concise. They get in and, uh, you know, they, they leave an impression on you. And, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, I mean... Uh, I think 1976 was a, was a huge year for me growing up because I saw a Taxi Driver that year. I read On the Road, and then I uh, Bruce Springsteen's uh, Born to Run came out, and that was you know like it was a very cinematic record. And I was just then starting to dabble in writing you know stories rather than just you know journaling or whatever. And when I started to construct narratives, those three things came together, and I think that. Uh, that 
you can still find those three things in everything that I write today. You get, I think you get, the first time you get, you get, uh, you know, you get uh, influenced by something, those things do, do stick, even though you outgrow parts of it and, you know, you move on. The, 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 there are elements of those first, the first things that you loved and that affected you very deeply that uh, will stay with you forever. And I think, like I said, you could find the influence of those three things if you looked in everything I do. You know, going on Rose's question, can you pinpoint uh, uh, or any parts of, of your work any, that, that might have been influenced uh, by a song or music or group that we know? I don't know if I would uh, say, uh, if I would go directly. I mean, I did a uh, playlist for the first book and sort of went around some of the songs and uh, the things, but definitely things like uh, Neil Young's Vision of California. Uh, you know, Even though he's from Canada, I, always, I listen to him in California, and, and I think that he has sort of a uh, California sound. He was a huge uh, influence. Early Tom Waits, those right. stories of the diners and, and things like that. I, I think you can definitely find influence of that. Springsteen, as I said, those first uh, Born to Run and, and a couple of the other early records were very influential. And then I got uh, pretty heavily into punk rock uh, when I moved to L.A. So the early L.A. punk scene, uh, I think that also comes out a little bit. And there's kind of a, an incohate rage lurking mm-hmm. uh, underneath some of these stories that uh, is influenced by, you know, the, the, both the sound and the lyrical content of uh, groups like uh, Black Flag and uh, sure. the Minutemen and, and bands that I that I love back in it all. You know, everything you see and do comes in comes out some way, and I can definitely. I don't know if I can point it out specifically to you, but I can definitely. I know when I'm riffing on something that uh, comes from you know uh, the music that I've listened to. And I, I'm my specialty is science fiction and fantasy, and I've encountered a lot of authors in that genre who are inspired by music, and um, not just the the rock works and heavy metal that's that's more fantastical in nature, but um, just the the raw imagery of it. Uh, have you have you ever felt influenced in in that direction, or do you really stick with writing the LA that you know? Uh, so far, you know, uh, it's, it's been LA stuff, you know, uh, I, you know, like I said, I did the thing about Bordeaux, but my next book is, is starts in Reno, but it, it's set in LA, my next novel. And I've got the next one planned out and that's probably going to be set in LA. So the, the great thing is there are about a billion stories here, right. you know, that, uh, that can vary LA. There's about a, there's so many different versions of LA and so many different neighborhoods and, I mean, I could write a story walking from here to my local coffee shop, uh, you know, with just the things that I see in that day. Luckily, I'm still, I, I'm still in love with the city, and I'm still inspired by it, by it all the time. There's just such a wide range of people here, and uh, no, I think I'll, uh, I'll probably be in LA for a while, you know, writing, writing about LA. And you said you've got that other novel planned out. Is that getting easier for you as you do it more? You know, it is when I say planned out, though, I don't write outlines. Mm. So I just know some basic things that I want to happen. In fact, I'm in the middle of a, I'm almost exactly at the middle point of uh, the new novel that I'm writing. And I have no idea how I'm going to get to the end. I mean, I know the (laughs) end. I know what is going to happen. But uh, I have to sit down now, take a break and kind of plot it out to the end because I just get caught up in writing the characters and setting everything up, and then I have to figure out how to get them out. But I think that's good in a way for me, uh, because if if I surprise myself, I'll surprise the reader. And uh, I'm a pretty rigorous editor. My editorial mind comes in, making sure that I'm not just taking easy ways out. Everything has to make sense uh, narratively. But uh, it, it, it makes me a little more creative if I don't have the, the whole the whole journey mapped out ahead of time. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I love that idea of, of you surprising yourself. Um, it, then it sounds like it's been a theme kind of throughout that you, you don't quite know what you're going to do next. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I think it's the best way for me to work. Uh, it's to see what comes up. And, and, you know, 
like I said, a lot of it, a lot of projects begin out of something that happens in my life or something that I see. Uh, I watch a lot of news and read a lot of newspapers, and so that you know, I'm inspired by things like that. And then uh, I sit down and say, okay, how can I, you know, uh, it'll be a character, an angel baby. It started with one character that I'd read about, uh, a white guy who smuggled immigrants uh, for uh, the the Mexican guys at the border. And from that, it just I just started spinning out, you know, this story that that became uh, my second novel, Angel Baby. So, it, for me, it's best to work that way—to go in uh, with a few little details and just sit down and start stringing it together. So you had said earlier on that you now devote your your time to to writing pretty much solely. Do do you teach at all, or do you uh, how how do you work as a writer? How do you uh, mark out your day? No, I'm a I'm a full time writer. Have been for like seven eight years now. Ever since uh, about the time that uh, Dead Boys was published, they they ended my they uh, we, uh, Radio and Records got bought by a bigger company and they killed by the competition and they killed Radio and Records. So I lost my job as soon as right after I'd signed my luckily right after I'd signed my two book deal. So ever since then, uh, you know, I've been going uh, working full time. I'm I'm lucky that uh, I developed a lot of good habits over all those years of having a day job. Uh, so what, when suddenly I was doing this all the time, uh, for you know, writing all the time, I was able to, I immediately started putting in, out a schedule. And so I, I try to write about five hours a day. I do two hours in the morning, two hours at, in the afternoon, and then an hour in the evening. And, you know, besides that, you've got to deal with, you know, interviews and uh different publicity things that, that that you do for the the work and then i've also been you know taking on film work now which is kind of gets in the gets in the way of of the uh the fiction writing but you know i'm not complaining i mean i'm i'm like one of the luckiest guys in the world to be able to to have this happen to him you know re- relatively late in life it's like uh, i just i have a suddenly have a a, a new life now you know i liked my old life it was fine when when writing, when my hobby was writing short stories, and they were getting published in little magazines uh, that paid you in three or four copies, I was perfectly happy. I mean, that was that was about as good as I thought it could get. So when this sort of secondary layer of things came along and uh, started getting uh, more real, well, you know, that was that was a good that's a good life too. You know, I, I'm very lucky. So it's it's all icing at this point. Uh, it's icing, but then you start to get a little bit more ambitious, you know, and say, well, how far can I go? And is it possible, you know, to do this or that? So, you know, there's always a, a new goal, but my number one goal is to be, you know, to be the best writer that I can be. I, I never think in commercial terms. If I had, I would never have put out a book of short stories right now. You know, they want you to keep putting out novels. They give you that first short story book to, you know, to, to, to hook you in, but they expect <laughs> you to write novels afterward. And luckily, uh, we were able to come to an agreement about that, and they uh, let me do a second book of short stories. And I promise them that the next three or four will all be novels, so they don't have to worry that I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go off the rails again. We've been talking with Richard Lang, and you can find his book, Sweet Nothing, which is a collection of short stories in stores right now. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time for us. Yeah, well, thanks for calling. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Director Rachel Deal talks about TV books coverage in the post-John Stewart era. Stay tuned. This is Grey McAllister, author of The Magician's Lie, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW News Director Rachel Deal is here to tell us about how Jon Stewart covered books on The Daily Show and what happens now that he's stepping down. Hi, Rachel. Hey, how are you? Doing well. So, um, you know, John Stewart was obviously a champion of books. He had a lot of authors on his show. Um, so the book industry was really shaken up by the news that he's retiring from The Daily Show. What's what's happening next? Do we have any idea where, where people will go? What's going to fill the gap? Yeah, I think... Um even less so than shaken up, I think people were just disappointed um, about, you know, his departure. Um, you know, the thing people said about Stewart is that um, he 
he was a big champion of books, particularly nonfiction. And he also, um, a lot of people felt that he really read the books mm. that, um, that his guests wrote. Um, and therefore, you know, he had sort of, um, more interesting and sort of, um, often more engaging conversations, I think, with authors than um, you might find in a lot of other places on TV. So we sort of took Stewart's announcement of his departure as a moment to, to look at the landscape of on-air promotion for books, both TV predominantly, but also on the radio. And what we're hearing is really that it's a very difficult moment to get attention for a book, and there aren't a lot of things that can move the needle. Right. But... You know, it really depends on what you have. I think that's the that's the big shift um, that's happened. And I guess when I say that, you know, there there was a time, you know, long before Stewart, I guess, even, you know, became such a big proponent of books when there were certain things that could happen that could just make a book. You know, certain appearances on... Like the Oprah Book Club or something right. like mean, that. Right. I mean, yeah, the o- Oprah's Book Club was obviously the biggest one that there was in the industry. Um but, you know, it used to be that, you know, an appearance on the Today Show or mm-hmm. on Good Morning America might really make a book. Um, and those days seem to be gone, a lot of people are saying. I mean, we sort of, for this article, we've informally polled some uh, some publicists who work in the industry. And what you're really hearing is lots and lots of different shows can, you know, can do something for a book. How much they do is I think a remaining question. I mean, you know, when you say can do something for it, it's possible that, you know, an appearance on an NPR show on, you know, fresh air, all things considered can really be a big boon for a book, but there's nothing that um, does what, you know, Oprah's book club did. And I think there's nothing that even does quite what some of the morning talk shows used to do at at right. a certain point. Yeah, I've I, I mean so so this this is a piece that's going to come out February 23rd on Monday. Uh and so we've we've put out the word to to various publicists and other people in the industry to see what they feel about this. Now, first of all, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I I knew that John Stewart uh you know, always appreciated how as as you just mentioned that he seemed to have really read the book and, and had interesting guests. Did you get a feeling? Did you get a sense of that that he actually moved books by a, by appearing on a show? You know, well, I think he could. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think there's anything that is a guarantee anymore. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things. And I mean, people people aren't necessarily bringing that up a lot. With um, you know, in the case of Stewart, it wasn't a guarantee that every book he had on his show, you know, would then become a bestseller. It's just that, um, you know, I think especially with Stewart, it's that he had a lot of books and a lot of authors on his show mm-hmm. and that the time given to discussing those books mm-hmm. in a sort of, in a meaty way right. was, um, was unique in what you have um, on TV and radio. And so, you know, what we're hearing from people is it can be great to get your book on this show or on that show, but everything depends on how much time you know, the book gets on the show and really, I mean, I think, I think what you're hearing too from people is you need somebody who, for whatever reason, becomes passionate about the book, you know? So, you know, we heard from some publicists that shows that aren't necessarily kind of huge shows people think of for promoting books, something as sort of far off the grid as, um, Fareed Zakaria's show on CNN, which is called uh, GPS, um, you know, some publicists said that's a show that if if he got behind a book and really cared about it, it could it could really do something for sales. Mm. That's not a show everybody's going to say sells a lot of books. Right. Um, right. And, and and it would depend on genre specifically, right? I mean, he, there are going to be certain kinds of books that Fareed Zakaria, for example, is going to champion. Right. I mean, I think one of the biggest things you're seeing, and one of the biggest problem that remains is it's really, really hard um, to do stuff with fiction on air. I was going to ask, is there, what, what is the difference between fiction and nonfiction? I mean, uh, it's almost, it, it seems you know, historically a lot easier to promote a nonfiction book because you can try and tie it into something newsworthy or some, some sort of current event that happens to be uh, occurring at the same time of the book. But with novels, how, how, how have they found that? Has there been any outlets where they say, well, this is a great outlet for fiction? 
Yeah, I mean, well, the the biggest issue is that not too many shows are going to have a, a novelist on. I mean, and of course, yeah. you know, the irony is Stewart didn't really do much. Fi- I don't know if he did any fiction, frankly. Right. Um, but, you know, a lot of the shows are nonfiction. So, um, or a lot of the shows offer opportunities for, for nonfiction. Um, you know, for fiction, I think a lot of people were saying, and a lot of people said across the board, um, NPR is can be the biggest driver of sales mm-hmm. with sort That's, of some of the top yeah. shows there. I think I mentioned being uh, Fresh Air, the Diane Reem show, and All Things Considered. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to fiction, it's it's really, really difficult. Um, everybody acknowledged that. And then what you're seeing in nonfiction is just this... S- this really spread out map where you get lots and lots of different shows where again, if, if the host or if, you know, a producer on the show is really interested in something, um, and it can get the right amount of time. I mean, you know, one interesting thing we did here over and over again is that, um, CBS Sunday morning could be a big driver of, of sales. Right. Um, and then, you know, we heard everything from the Bill Maher show, you know, which is something, I mean, certainly I don't really, associate, yeah, I don't yeah. associate that as a show that promotes a lot of books, but, um, he has writers on as they're talking about, again, this we're talking about the nonfiction talking about issues. Uh, so that might, that might, he, so he'll often have a guess with that. So that might promote that book at the time. Right. And again, yeah. I mean, I think it's something where you have to sort of say, well, this is the right book with this, you know, the right message that's going to appeal to this kind of, host and this kind of show at this right. time. So, you know, it's really drilling down um, and getting a lot of things lined up, I think. But like I said, we, you know, so we heard everything from that to, um, you know, one interesting thing we heard actually can be that I think for fiction, um, if you have an author um, who has a, a political leaning, maybe one way or the other, I mean, they right. write fiction, but they're known to be, and this I heard this more. This is the case, I think, with conservatives. If you have an author who writes fiction but um, is conservative, you know, they might be, or they're a well-known conservative, they might be a fit for some of the um, conservative talk shows. Um, So that's, I mean, you see something interesting there. You know, and certainly, of course, the political books, they do sort of divide a little bit along the the blue-red spectrum right. that you see on TV. So, you know, if you have a left-leaning title, it might be something um, that, w- you know, Rachel Maddow would do. And then um, a lot of the right-leaning books, you know, would be on things like Fox and Friends and Bill O'Reilly. I mean, names that you'd expect. Right. And as far as fiction, I mean, you, you can expect someone like Donna Tartt coming on to being on many a talk show. But, but in order to try and break out a novel or something, there's no, doesn't seem to be any platform for that. Or any way, any any shows that would would have a new novelist or young novelist on. Yeah, I mean, what I did hear from some people is that in, when it comes to new novelists, um, your biggest, your your best bet is probably going to be still the Today Show and Good Morning America. But the issue there, just like you said, is that those shows are going to lean towards having the really big established authors. Right. So, you know, your your John Grishams, your Stephen Kings, your Gillian Flynn. I mean, they're going to want those people when they're putting out their next book. Um, but, you know, uh, some publicists did say if you have something that you can push as, a, you know, that you have a good hook, it's sort of an interesting debut or it's a debut that a lot of people are talking about. And, of course, debut is, is huge for fiction because um, it is a hook. Um you know, that's something that you might be able to work and, and get uh, a novelist on, on one of those shows. Did any of the publicists mention online shows, YouTube shows? Because I know that there are a lot of uh, online video presenters who are now incredibly popular uh, and who really have big audiences. Is that something that anyone's looking at? People are looking at it. I, I should say we didn't, we asked people to look at if you will, sort of the old school, um, right. Broadcast media. Right. So we, we didn't open this up to things like that, but, um, I mean, to your point, I think that's what's happening now is because it's so hard and there, you know, you really don't know what you're going to get. I mean, I have to say too, you know, nobody said it's a guarantee when you get this, that it will, you know, that sales will skyrocket. So, you know, you could get one of these things, it could be a perfect fit and it just might not move the needle much. Um, so I think with everything, what you're finding is it all depends on what happens regardless of whether you get, you know, something 
big on air or you get a show that might be perceived as having a smaller audience or actually does have a smaller audience, say, than like a Today Show or a Good Morning America. You know, if you get somebody on a podcast who's really passionate about something and it's a show that reaches a pretty significant audience, um, although it might be niche, it might wind up doing more for your book. I mean, and and we're seeing... Um, I mean, it's it's related to this. Um, it's not it's not quite the same, but um, you know, with, even with things like Mark Zuckerberg's book club, you know, which is something people made a big fuss over, right. and we're very excited about in the publishing industry. Um, you know, we're seeing that it's not it hasn't been a huge driver of sales. That kind of um, that kind of attention. I mean, it can drive sales, but right. I think one of the issues there um, is that that book club. He's doing quite a number of books. Um, he's doing a book every two weeks for um, the duration of the year. So it's a it's a short time period. It's a really tiny window for publishers to try to get more um, physical copies on, on shelves. Right. Right. And it's also a pretty short window to promote the book because realistically, by the time you can kind of do promotions, he's probably going to have moved on to his next title or be just about to. Um so, you know, even that kind of thing is really tricky. And um, and I think that sort of the ability to move quickly and do things online and and do other kinds of things is is really in some ways what this article is, is pointing to. I mean, you know, you, you can't rely, of course, on the old ways of doing things. Right. I remember talking with George Gibson about five years ago. He was then uh, publisher uh, of Walker and Company, now Bloomsbury. And even then, he said five years before, um, it, you could just get a book review in the time in New York Times or have it on NPR, and and you could just notice a market. Uh, increase in sales, but even five years ago, he said it took a confluence of of events and coverage to to notice anything, if at all. And even if you got the perfect storm, or actually, unless you got the perfect storm, then you may not notice much. But right. so, 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 who else have uh, the publicists pointed to? Um, well, we did. You know, we heard a number of shows. I think, as I said, um, you know, I think the sort of the Holy Trinity on NPR is Fresh Air, All Things Considered, and, right. and the Diane Reem Show. Um, CBS Sunday Morning right. is, I think, we heard over and over again, can be one of the, the top um, shows beyond NPR um, for book promotion. Um, you know, some people said PBS NewsHour. Uh, mm. You know, again, t- depends on the book. Um, we mentioned Real Time with Bill Maher. 60 Minutes can be a huge driver. You know, of course, 60 Minutes is a really can be a really big platform for a really big book. So um, that's the kind of show where you're not going to get I don't think there are any opportunities to book um, something there. Um, So, you know, we heard Lou Dobbs tonight, uh, the Rachel Maddow show. I mentioned the Bill Riley show, Fox and Friends, um, Good Morning America, the Today Show. Um, You know, and then we heard a couple other things. but that's sort of um that's that's the rundown i mean you know one one person said the hat trick you know what they consider is sort of a new york times feature um a glowing new york times daily review and an appearance on fresh air i mean that's mm, you know that's right. a pretty big that's a pretty big yeah. get um yeah. <laughs> so um you know I, I did hear from some people that bill Maher is underrated um, in terms right. of what he can do for books. And, and interestingly, somebody said um, that actually, if Mar doesn't do a segment on the book, that if you're able to get an author on his on his show, and as you said, the, you know, the format of the show is that he gets sort of notable people to right. talk about different topics in a roundtable-like discussion. Um, and so if you have a big enough author and you can get him on the show as sort of one of the talking heads, if you will, one of the yeah. pundits, um, that that can be actually a big, you know, a driver of sales, maybe not of one specific book, but um, just of books in general. Um, so, you know, that's another way. But again, that that probably means you're going to have a pretty well-known author um, if you're able to get them on there. So, yeah, it's, I think it's a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that I, a lot of people who work in the business already know, but, you know, it's, it's really, it's really tough and um, only getting tougher to sort of get um, to get the kind of on-air push that is going to to really make a difference. And I, I frankly, I think gone are the days when you can get an on-air push that will guarantee 
the book, you know, becoming a bestseller. Um, so, and that's, that's probably been the case for quite a while, but, um, it's certainly the case now. Well, it sounds to me like that leaves a a real gap and it'll be very interesting to see who comes in and fills it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's one thing people aren't necessarily talking about, you know, with, um, with the daily show is I think everybody's sad to see Stuart go, um, unquestionably, but, um, you know, there is this there is this opportunity and there's a chance that whether it's on that show or whether a new show comes along or something else. I mean, you know, we need to find the next person who's going to be a significant figure, you know, on the on air, um, who's really going to be passionate about books and, and be interested in, in right. promoting them to people. So right. All right. we'll keep an eye out. Thank you very much, Rachel. It's always lovely to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, this is Gay Talese. I'm the author of The Bridge, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Kevin Sussums, author of I Left It on the Mountain. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 